Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 64 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. I should have recorded this episode several days ago. I've had a pretty crazy week, one of those weeks where in describing it to my editor, it was like one thing upon another and suddenly the snowball is rolling down the hill and I can't keep up with anything. I have to say, none of what I was doing is negative or contrary to what I want to be doing. But when I have such a limited amount of debt-free time, if I miss an opportunity, it's just a missed opportunity. So it is Monday now, the 14th of November gone around and around because this is an important episode and it will be very difficult for me to deliver. If you are a victim of childhood sexual abuse or any sort of child abuse, whether it be neglect, inappropriate communication, emotional abuse, this could be a triggering episode for you to listen to. And I apologize, but I also hope that something that you can relate to, that you're willing to listen and to sort of let the emotions flow through you. I know that the more we shove things down and box them up, you never stop carrying them around. And in my experience, the box just gets heavier. The more I express my grief about things, and this is grief for a lot of things. The recording of this episode comes at a time where I just completed a lesson in my grief training with David Kessler. We were asked, make a list of our losses and the times that we have grieved in our life. And losses can be anything. My first significant loss in my young life was the first time I was sexually abused as I lost safety, I lost understanding, I lost innocence, I lost security, I lost the ability to live without being hyper-aroused, hyper-aroused meaning hyper-vigilant, always on the lookout. It's an exhausting way to live life and, and that was my first significant loss and it was big enough in making my list that I wrote about it in one of our assignments. So in the last episode, I talked about my Brady Bunch sort of leave it to beaver first seven years. I often joke about, oh, I don't feel like a baby boomer, but when I look at the first years of my life, we lived a very boomer-esque lifestyle. My dad was a full-time employee with the state. He had a couple of different jobs, actually. My mother was a stay-at-home mother. It was just Ricky and myself until I was five. So that's a lot of memories that are just the four of us. We had a yellow kitchen table and we sat around that table every night and had dinner. I often had to sit there for a couple hours because I wouldn't eat my baked beans or my peas or something. I remember my mother sweeping and mopping the floor every night as my dad watched TV. I had to make my bed the moment I got up. When I got home from school, I put play clothes on. There was nothing in my life that was tragic or scary other than when you do something wrong, like a little kid will do, you know, eat cookies before dinner, that kind of thing. I lived in a neighborhood full of wonderful kids. And at that time, up until, you know, the abuse really took hold, I felt very loved and supported in my neighborhood. And all of those things changed. I will preface all of this by saying I'm lucky in the sense that I was never actually raped or had intercourse in my abuse. And nothing that was done to me caused physical pain. It was humiliating and confusing and not right. And it still, it still passes through my brain daily. But I am lucky because I, I didn't have a lot of the trauma that can go into much more violent or forceful sexual abuse. The sort of downside for me is so much of it was vague in the beginning, keeping in mind that the first time I was abused was probably 1971. So I was seven, maybe, maybe 1972, but there was no internet. And what happened at home stayed at home. Schools weren't like they are now. You went to school and you did your schoolwork and you came home. Students that acted out were not necessarily fairly so, but removed from the classroom and the, and the pressure was put on the parents to control of their children. Children nowadays get a lot more support in school. There was speech therapy and extra help for learning. I remember as a little child, I didn't need it, but I remember making believe I had a list because I wanted to go to speech therapy. 
I remember that there were school counselors, people that came in and spoke to children, groups of kids would go off and talk. And I remember some of these kids, kids that I grew up with in Dewey School and Kimball School that got in trouble a lot and were often at the counselor's office or in the principal's office. But no one talked about this kind of stuff. I didn't even know what sexual abuse was. I didn't know what sex was. I was a little girl. Looking back on it now, I remember the first two or three incidences were not enough for me to think anything was wrong. My abuser was very cunning at figuring out when to be at my house to have access to me. And typically he was in a position of power and nobody else was home or he was staying and people were home, but the dynamics were such that he felt he had privacy enough to do these things. So the first time I remember anything off happening to me in the middle of the night, I woke up and I thought I must've had a bad dream because somebody was rubbing my back and rubbing my legs and telling me it would be okay. Don't worry, it's okay. I'm like, what, what, what? You know, I was startled awake and I was loud because I didn't know what was going on. And my abuser said, it's okay, it's okay, Barbie, go back to sleep. And I didn't want to go back to sleep. I didn't see all, and I'm like, no, I'm okay, I'm okay. And I got up and I think I went to the bathroom or wandered around like that. It was just, it woke me up. And so he returned to where he was sleeping and that was that. But I remember just thinking it was odd, like that's bizarre. You know, what just happened? But that was that. And maybe I was seven or eight. I think that might've been third grade, maybe the beginning of fourth grade. As good as my memory is, you know, I didn't keep a journal of this stuff. So I don't remember the exact dates of these things. But that was odd. And in looking back now, I think perhaps my abuser was testing the waters. A lot of people that victimize people, they see what they can get away with in the beginning to know how much to push. So the next time was probably... You know, I don't know. I, I would say maybe a few weeks or months later, probably a few months later, quite a while. And again, I was asleep and I had gone to bed earlier. So this was earlier in the night. And I woke up because somebody, the covers were up around my stomach. So my legs and underpants were not covered, which is not how I would have fallen asleep. And I just remember somebody touching my crotch, touching my vagina over my underpants. And it startled me awake and I jumped up and I saw the shadow of the person. And they were standing very still and not saying anything. So I was very quiet and didn't say anything. And so then I got nervous. And so I called for my mother. And my abuser said, your mom's not home. And so I said, well, I'm getting up. And so I got up. Again, I was little. You know, I didn't know that this person had done it. I didn't know what was going on. I was a little girl in the middle of the night. And I remember going downstairs and being in the living room and looking out the window. And my mother was getting home. And I think she might have been working nights afternoons or evenings at the hospital at that time, or she was someplace, but she wasn't home at that time. The first time with the rubbing my back and the legs and being told I was having a bad dream, my mother was home that time. This time she wasn't. And when she came home, I was very clingy to her and I just felt off. And so my older brother was awake and my dad was there and all these people were around, including the abuser. And so I didn't know at the time this person would become my abuser, but I wanted to tell my mother what had happened. And she sensed that something wasn't right. Are you okay? You seem clingy. Are you okay? Well, I think I had a bad dream. And, you know, I just, I just didn't have the guts to say anything. And I think that incident probably gave my abuser the power he was looking for to know that he could probably get me into compliance and, and I wouldn't say anything. I remember years, years later, my younger sister, Johanna, sharing with me a different person in our lives that had, she had woken up and they were, you know, touching her inappropriately. She yelled at them, what the hell are you doing? What are you doing? And she demanded he stop and said, if he didn't stop, she would tell. And he stopped. And I remember at the time feeling like, oh my God, all of that was my fault. Because I was young when, when Johanna shared this with me. I was a bit older. I remember owning it. Like, oh, if I had just said no, it never would have happened. But I didn't have the ability to say no. And that's been a pattern my whole life. I have a hard time saying no when people ask me for things. I just feel like it's my obligation to say yes. That was the second time. And a lot of time passed between those events and the first real incidents of abuse. And as I look back on it as an adult and look and create patterns, I see that the patterns were really logistical patterns. But as a child, I owned them. I owned the incidences occurring. So first time it was actual, actual physical abuse. My parents had gone to a party. And my brother and I were babysitting Jonathan and Johanna, and they were little, 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 you know, maybe 18 months and three years or two and three, really young. 
they both got sick. They both were throwing up and throwing up. And I remember Ricky was just kind of laughing. And I, I was having an asthma attack. I was really sick. It must have been fall or winter. I had a lot of asthma then. And I was a mess and I was crying and I didn't know what to do. I don't know who Ricky called, I think. I don't know who he called. But we got the vomit all cleaned up and we got Jonathan Johanna situated in bed. And we Ricky wrote this whole note for my parents. And he put me on the couch downstairs with a humidifier all propped up because I was having a really significant asthma attack. And back in those days, there was no preventative medicine for asthma. There was no albuterol inhalers. There was no preventative anything. If you were having an asthma attack, you waited it out. Eventually it would stop or it wouldn't and you would go to the hospital and they would give you a shot of epinephrine, which dilates your lungs, causes your heart rate to go up and often made me throw up. And for me, deciding when to go to the hospital was, do I prefer to weeds or vomit? Which will it be? And I also had a pill of medicine called Tedrol. And so Ricky had given me the Tedrol. And so I was jittery and shaky and still wheezing quite a bit. He had solicited help. And so when my parents got home from the party and they were inebriated, really, really drunk, the abuser was there as well. And so this person offered to stay downstairs to make sure I was okay. My parents were drunk. <laughs> they seldom were drunk. This is the only really one time I remember it. And so I was on this like fake pleather couch we have and my abuser person was sitting at the end of the couch and watching TV. And in those days, TV stopped at midnight or one in the morning. There was no all night TV. Some channels were on later than others. And usually there'd be a national anthem and then it was just interference. There was no station at all. And so the TV stayed on. And then I remember all of a sudden my legs being rubbed. And so I'm in immediate panic because I know something bad is going to happen. And I don't feel good and I can't breathe. And I don't know what to do. And so I just stayed perfectly still and made believe I was asleep. It seemed like hours and hours. It was probably half an hour or 45 minutes, I would think at the most. The covers were taken off. My pajama bottoms were pulled down. My underpants were taken off. And I was just touched and rubbed. <laughs> Anyways, nothing, nothing physically painful, but embarrassing. My abuser had me, he put me in different poses and positions. And I just made believe I was asleep the whole time. I didn't know what to do. If you're watching me, this little girl right here is what I look like at the time. <laughs> I stayed still. I just stayed perfectly still. Breathing was incredibly difficult, but I remember I had so much fear and anxiety. I think I shot enough adrenaline into my system that I don't remember the wheezing being bad through the whole experience, but I just remember staying perfectly still. He would ask me questions and I didn't answer. I just stayed quiet. Finally, after what seemed like forever, sometimes he would take my hand too and make me touch him. And that was horrifying. Because again, even though I was now probably eight or nine, there was no instant access to naked people. And, you know, I think children just knew less because there was no internet. There was no way for me to know a lot of things unless somebody had shared them with me. So I was a bit confused. However, I didn't know what was wrong. My next door neighbor and I dug holes in the backyard and peed in them once. We thought it was so cool to pee outside. We had a big trouble for pulling our pants down outside. So I knew that you weren't supposed to pull your pants down. <laughs> That's about as far as it went for me. So finally he said, do you want me to stop? And I said, yes, I'm cold and I'm tired. And so he stopped and put my pants back on and went upstairs. And so I laid there all night long, so confused, so utterly, utterly confused to what had happened and why it had happened. What do I do? I, I was just out of my mind. And so I remember waking up in the morning, finally falling asleep. And I was sick enough that I needed to go to the doctors. And so my mother took me to the hospital and I had the epinephrine and the treatments and everything. And I came home and I was sick. I was sick for several days. So that was the first time. And I remember I was wearing these bold checkered pajamas and I was wearing these underpants that had people on them. So when I was little, Carter's underwear was what there was. And as I got older, nine and 10 years old, you could buy underwear with prints on and pictures on them. Clothing started to get fancy. This is how old I am. <laughs> I didn't just wear white underpants forever. And so I remember my mom had bought me three or four pairs of underpants. There were some with candy canes on them and, you know, some with little puppy dot, whatever, pictures of things. And so I remember that's what I was wearing. So that was that. I said nothing. I was just quiet. We had a chaotic life in the sense that we had two little babies at home. When I think back now to how old my mother was at this time, she wasn't even 30 when all of these things started happening. So life went on. I went through fourth grade. And in the summer after fourth grade, and that's when Maura died, my friend Maura. And then fifth grade came. And fifth grade was a year that it happened more than once. It didn't happen consistently. What I would do is I would forget about it. After a while, I would just put it away, hypervigilant for days and weeks and months right after. And then I would start to forget about it. In hindsight now, 
I think I probably sensed a change in my abuser or an increased frequency in me being alone with him because I would all of a sudden start remembering it and thinking, oh no, oh no, oh no. And so as a child, I thought by thinking about it, I caused it to happen. I had incredible, incredible guilt over this. And so the second time it happened, my parents are away. So we all had our bedrooms upstairs. And so Jonathan and Johanna shared a bedroom for a while. Ricky and I didn't share. I think it must have been, I don't remember. We had a lot of combinations. We all slept in one room for a while and the other bedroom was in my area. But I think at this time, my parents were still sleeping upstairs and they had twin beds, <laughs> Brady Bunch twin beds across the hall. But for some reason this night, I was sleeping in my mother's bed. And I think it's because I missed her and I knew she was away and we had had to get help, someone to come, you know, stay with us while she was gone or they were gone. And so I didn't think about it at the time. I'm going through my normal routine and everything, evening routine, and, and I want to sleep in mommy's bed. And then, so when I get woken up by the covers coming down, being pulled off of me, I had this instant realization that, oh no, if I were in my own room where Jonathan and Johanna were, that would be the three of us in one room. Why did I sleep here? So I immediately take ownership. So it was a repeat of the other time, a little longer in duration, a little bit more required interaction on my part with him. I stayed making believe I was asleep. So if he asked me to do something, I didn't respond. He would take my hand and make it do what he asked me to do. So it was primarily just touching. I don't ever remember it feeling bad in the sense that it hurt me, but I don't ever remember it feeling good either in the sense that it gave me pleasure. It was confusing how it felt. And I got feelings inside of me. Now, let me be clear. There's not many nine-year-olds that understand what sexual arousal is. And there was nothing about me that felt aroused sexually. I felt very confused. The way I was feeling was gross to me. And even talking about it now makes my neck hairs cringe a little bit. But it's important for me to verbalize this because I was, I was at this point, maybe 10 years old. This time, he again, he, he had this thing about putting me in different positions and poses. And I imagined he was staring at me. I don't know. I never opened my eyes and I never responded. I just stayed as still as I could. You know, thinking about things and counting, I counted to a hundred like ten times, and you know, I would I would think about things. I'd think about a mountain I climbed or a sleepover with a friend. I, I just tried to distract myself so I could get through what was happening to me. He made me roll over on my stomach this time. That was alarming because I just felt I just felt so incredibly vulnerable. And, you know, as a mother, when I look at my little newborn babies and. They depend on us for everything and we change their diapers and we have absolute access to their innocent, precious little bodies. And I get, just get nauseous. And I think of somebody hurting baby. This is when I get upset. It's just so gross and wrong. I, I don't understand it. I don't understand it at all. So that was the second time. Again, when it was all said and done, I was given my clothes and put them back on. And and then he left and went to bed and I, and I you know, went back to bed. That night, I believe I got up and went and got in my own bed. I didn't want to sleep there in my mother's bed. That morning after it happened was the first time that I set fire to what I was wearing. So it was a school morning, as I recall, or maybe it was a couple of mornings later. I needed to get out of the house without anyone watching me. And I said I had to go to school early. So nobody was coming to walk with me. I had neighbor friends. And I put my pajamas and my underpants I was wearing in my violin case. And I took a book of matches and I went to the park, White's Park. It was where the hockey rink is at White's Park. Now it's like a dirt parking lot. And to the side of it were a lot of puddles and things were sort of near the pond. And so I dug into the mud there so I could get rid of what I was doing. And on the dry dirt, I just set fire to my pajamas and to those green underpants with the people on them. But two times in a row, I was wearing those underwear. And so I thought, okay, it's the underwear. And I think it was the same pair of gold pajamas. And so I set fire to them and it took a long time. I think they had that flame retardant stuff in them. It was brand new. So they got all melty. It took a long time. I ended up being late for school. I burned them as best I could and buried them in that muck and went to school, walked to school. And I felt like, okay, I took some power. I was in fifth grade at the time. And this was the first year, fifth grade, where my social life at school began to tank. And this is a really common response to sexual abuse. So between the first and the second time, I definitely pulled back at school. I would be distracted. I, I couldn't pay attention as much. And I was just anxious and antsy all the time because I was dealing with something that I didn't understand from a person I was supposed to be able to trust. A person who was nice to me, 99% of the time, I felt no fear around this person. So when these things happened, I just didn't understand. And I also sort of thought maybe I was supposed to understand and nobody told me. But, you know, I didn't know who, know who to ask. I was never threatened. He did say that this was not to be shared that this was just our secret. 
and that it was fine to keep it a secret. And if I shared, people wouldn't understand. You know, I think all the classic things that somebody in control of somebody else would say. I never felt threatened in terms of like physical danger, but I also felt incredibly responsible for my family. That's a part of my personality that, that I think appeals to abusive people. They want somebody that's a people pleaser. And always from, from my first days being alive on the planet, my mother tells me how I just wanted to make people happy. I smiled at everybody. You know, when my, my Grammy Higgins would come over and she and my mother didn't get along very well. And I would open the door, Grammy Higgins, you're just what I wanted to see. Come in. And my grandmother thought I was, you know, not being genuine. And my mother's like, you can't make this stuff up. As much as I was self-centered in the sense that I wanted to be treated fairly, I know that when I was out playing with my friends, I liked to control what we did, but I wouldn't ever you know, want to have a fight or lose my friends. And so I don't remember any social issues other than the normal ones growing up at Dewey School. When I have my Kimball School memories, which is fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. This is the, the three-year chunk of my life in seventh grade. So there's a four-year chunk of my life where things tanked. And so I started to pull back and my sort of popular friends pulled away. And I began to hang out with a wonderful group of people. I'm friends with all of them today, but they weren't, you know, the, the cool, popular kids. It was like another secondary sort of group. The social dynamics, I think back to when you were in fifth and sixth grade, you know, there's always little groups of people that control things. And this is when I really noticed that I was pulling away. The next thing that happened to me is physical sensations in my body throughout the day. So I don't think too many 10-year-olds really understand what touching yourself might do. I don't know that 10-year-olds masturbate, sexual part of our self. It's as natural as it's the part that needs water and food and air. You know, we're, we're designed biologically to reproduce. We're designed emotionally to fall in love. And unlike many, most animals, sex between humans is an expression of love. It also is an expression of power and control. And as a 10-year-old, I didn't understand any of this. I just knew that I didn't like it. But it was vague because it didn't hurt. It was just embarrassing and humiliating. And so what would happen to me in school is I would get physical sensations in my crotch area, in my vagina. And it wasn't like, ooh, this feels good. It was like, ugh. I was just aware of it. And I don't even know, I don't even know what to call it. In all the reading I've done around the effects of sexual abuse, an early awareness of sexuality is incredibly damaging to children because we aren't ready for it. We're not ready for any of the feelings and what they mean and how they fit into life. So I would have a hard time at school. And so I started wearing pants a lot because I didn't like the feeling of my thighs against the wood and my school desk, you know, the desks were these wooden desks. I'd wear two or three pairs of underwear to school sometimes because I just felt like I needed to protect myself. Nothing, nothing direct. That's the best way I can explain all of these feelings. I just didn't understand. I asked to go to the bathroom a lot because I just needed to get out of the classroom. I couldn't stand it. And I didn't have to peer. I sometimes I'd just sit there on the toilet and sit and sit and sit. And then so oftentimes the teachers would come, are you okay? I'm okay. I just can't go to the bathroom. And I'd go back. I just needed these breaks, like sensory breaks. Again, in this day and age, if I were a teacher and I had a student that exhibited these behaviors, the first thing I'd think is that something wasn't right. But teachers weren't trained this way back then. It wasn't like it is now in the sense of communities really rallying around their children. They're very clearly neglected children were the ones that got in trouble all the time. And so they got a lot of attention. But, you know, I came to school in my nice outfits and I paid attention. I got in trouble for talking all the time, but that was that. So the next time, fifth grade, I had an incident, that incident on my mother's bed. And then I had an incident in the spring. And quite honestly, I think it was on the pullout sofa downstairs. We were remodeling our house and I couldn't sleep upstairs because I'm allergic to horsehair plaster. And so I was sleeping on the couch, which just gave me access to anyone coming in and out. During this time, we had a lot of traffic in our house. I lived right near my grandparents, both sets. I had cousins nearby. We didn't have a lock on our back door until we remodeled our house when I was in high school. Like we just, you know, it was just, we never went anywhere. I never could go to sleep fully feeling safe because I didn't know if my abuser would show up. He was somebody that had access to our home. So there was never a lot of safety, especially in a situation like that. So when fifth grade ended, I had now had not only abuse, but hospitalization. So after one episode of abuse, the next morning, my abuser was, had stayed and he was at the house still. And I was having a really bad asthma attack. And I was wheezing so badly that my mother asked this person to take me to the hospital. So, <sighs> so I had to drive in a car. I remember just sitting as far as I could against the door to the car. And I was getting older now. 
just having a better understanding. Plus my body had started to change, you know, a little bit of pubic hair and, you know, a little bit, oh, I think I'm gonna get boobs now. And and I was horrified, horrified that this would become known to my abuser because I just thought it started to dawn on me sort of what all this was. So we were in the emergency room and I'm having an asthma attack. And so I would go in, he brings me into where the doctor's up, where the doctor is. And I said, I'm fine. I can be here alone, please. Because I had to take off my clothes and get into a Johnny. So I just said, go home and help mommy. And, and so he left, thank God. And then when the doctor came in, I just said, I, I'm, I need to stay. I, I'm really sick. And so I had a pretty intuitive doctor. Not as intuitive as I might've liked when I think back on it now, but so I stayed, I was admitted and I stayed two or three nights in the hospital with my asthma attack. And I remember some friends coming to visit me from school when I got home and there was a lot of attention around it. I felt unbelievably safe in that hospital room. I could fall asleep at night. The nurses came in and checked on me. For like the first time in years, I understood what it felt like to feel safe. So the hospital became a bit of a respite for me. My allergies were bad in the season changes. And when I look at my abuser now and analyze his state of mental health, he was the least healthy in the season changes. And we've talked about this. Predictability is so important for babies and children learning and development, but also in somebody that's struggling with a mental disorder. Predictability can be a deal breaker if there isn't any. I was hospitalized again. Fall and spring of fifth grade, I was hospitalized. And then again in sixth grade. I always say I have such an amazingly good memory. and. I do. I remember specifics about certain incidences of abuse. The last one I remember, we were on a vacation and we went up into the White Mountains in summer. And so we never went on vacation. We went and stayed in this beautiful little mountain house and we did all the things that you would do up north. We went hiking. We went to a lake and went swimming. We went to Clark's Trained Bears. I think we must have gone to Storyland. You know, all the things that you would do with kids as a family. Ricky had a friend up for a while. We had different people come up and join us. And I was sleeping upstairs with Ricky and his friend, Jack, like we were upstairs. And then Jonathan and Johanna were downstairs and my mom and dad were downstairs. And then I think one night I slept on the couch. At any rate, what happened was I was going to be alone upstairs and not, it was like a loft. And so I said, oh no, I don't want to sleep alone. I don't want to sleep alone. And so my abuser said, I'll sleep up there with you. And, you know, my mother was overwhelmed with Jonathan and Johanna. I don't know how helpful my dad was. This all seemed like a great idea to them. And then I was trying to backpedal. I don't mind sleeping downstairs. I'll sleep in the bed with, you know, and it was just one of those things where I, I wasn't being let off the hook. I was going to end up alone upstairs. So it was summer and I had these summer pajamas. They were like little poofy little bottoms and then a little matching top and then like shorts on the top. So I remember I put on like four undershirts and like four pairs of underwear under the pajamas. And I put like 10 blankets and I tucked them in really tight. So, you know, it's summer and I'm hot. And so I went to bed and I fell asleep, believe it or not. But I heard him coming up the stairs when it was when everybody was going to bed. And I knew that it was probably going to happen. And it did. And it was horrible. And at that point, it was the worst one yet. It lasted the longest. The most things were done to me because I had started sort of just beginning to physically change. There were comments about my body. So this person making comments to me about my naked body was horrifying. They weren't overtly sexual or perverse, but noticing commenting on the changes that are happening. Oh, you're getting hair. Oh, you're going to have boobs. And horrifying. These words coming out of this person's mouth wasn't something that I wanted to hear. So I got through it because that's what happened. And, and I had to pack up all that stuff. And then when we went home, I went to the park and set fire to all that stuff as well. And I remember mother asking, my mother asking me once, hadn't seen a certain pair of pajamas. And I said, oh, I must have left them. So I know I just made up, oh, maybe I left them Suzanne's house on a play date or something. But I mean, she had so much going on. Along with me being abused at this time, our family was in chaos. And so my mother worked early in the morning. So in fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, I would get up with my mother at like 4.30. And she would lay out Jonathan and Johanna's clothes on the radiator in the kitchen. And she would make breakfast and pack their lunches and everything. But I would have to wake them up. So I was, you know, 9, 10, 11. So I'd get myself dressed for school. And I'd eat my breakfast and then my mother would leave. I had my brother Rick and my dad there. Zero help from either of them. I can't lay blame on, I don't know the dynamics of why they didn't think they needed to help me, but they didn't. And Ricky would get dressed and go off to school and my father would get dressed and go off to work. And I would be in charge of Jonathan and Johanna. And so most of the time it was fine, but there were times when it wasn't fine. Jonathan had very, very severe ADHD and 
they were little enough in the beginning of this, they didn't have a pull-ups in. So sometimes they saw their pants, I had to change them and clean them. It was a lot for a 10-year-old, nine, 10, 11 years. And I would walk them to the babysitter. And there were days when I just, by the time all of that was done, the last thing I wanted to do was go to school. I was exhausted. I have one horrible memory of my family. I share this because it was just all with what was going on at the time. You know, I felt like the wife, the mother in my home, and then I had this abusive thing going on. I couldn't wrap my head around why at age 10, I was expected to do all these things. And this isn't something I ever talked about with friends. You just didn't, there was nothing to compare it to. But I remember this one morning, Jonathan and Diana were just a mess. Jonathan was crying. The shoelaces were all tangled. I was sitting in the closet in the TV room, tears pouring down my face, and I couldn't untangle the boots. And my dad was furious. I'm going to be late for work. And I'm like, just go, daddy, just go. And I remember Terry and Jill were waiting in the kitchen for me, just my neighborhood friends. And I just said, go, it's okay. And I just was crying and crying and crying. And, and so I, I had this momentary lapse in my dad, who was really standoffish mostly. And he helped me untie the boots and we got them all situated and we walked them down to the babysitter. And he actually drove me to school and dropped me off. But it was one of the worst mornings of my life. I just felt really, really alone and deserted. And I didn't know who to talk to about any of this. I got through sixth grade and then through seventh grade. And I believe by seventh grade, I actually had managed to avoid the hospital. I don't, I don't think I was in the hospital that whole year. I also know that in the year of seventh grade, I never was abused that year. I think some of it was just access to me. Our lives were different. Our schedules were different. Jonathan and Johanna were older. Being arrangements were different. We had had some work done in our house. My brother Rick slept downstairs. The wife shared with Johanna. Jonathan had his own room. The dynamics were different. I've told this story before. The last time abuse was attempted was when I really realized that what was happening to me was dangerous. And if it continued as I got older, then it would likely turn into actual sex. I thought I knew what sex was. And I've told the story about going to get my hair done. I think it was sixth grade and reading a true story magazine about a little girl who had been abused by her stepfather. And it went through everything that he had done. All the steps just mimicked what had happened to me. The first couple of times where nothing really happens. And then, then the first time it happens. And each time it happens, it gets significantly more detailed. So each time I was abused, a little bit more, a little bit more was expected. I was oblivious early on, but once I knew what sexual abuse was, I started finding ways to read about it, going to the library and reading magazines. That was the biggest thing was magazines. There was no internet. I couldn't just ask Siri. And so by the time I got to seventh grade, Summer was difficult. I liked the structure of school and I would count down the days until school. And I remember in the summer of seventh grade, I got fry boots and gauchos and I was going off to Runlet. And Runlet was a huge change. You know, elementary school to middle school. Sixth grade had been a very tough year for me socially. I got invited to certain parties and things. You know, I was included because, you know, it's a small enough community that parents aren't going to let you invite everyone in your class but one or two people. But I do know that clear social divisions were beginning. And then a lot of my friends that lived in the fancy houses and would make it into the popular group began to drift away a bit. And some didn't, but some did. And I had lost Mora. Mora, although she lived in that neighborhood, didn't live that lifestyle. And I think that if she not died of cancer, she would have been a, a real support. She's somebody I think I could have confided. I say that now. At the time, I was really clueless. And so by the time the last attempt happened, and I talked about this in a previous episode, but I'll reiterate it here. I'd pretty much you know, forgotten that it was happening because it had been a long time. And I thought maybe it was just never going to happen again. Really, if it had not happened again, I may never have told anybody, <laughs> which is amazing. So sure enough, the summer of 1976, it did happen again, or the attempt happened. And this time, my abuser was very, very unabashedly, you know, I had my younger brother and sister in the room with me, and he woke me up. And this time, he didn't care that the light was on. It wasn't pitch black. And my abuser was incredibly modest, and he he was standing in his underwear where he clearly had an erection, which I didn't even understand what I was looking at, but I knew that it scared the crap out of me. And that was when I locked myself in the bathroom. I got up, no, 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 I'm fine, I'm fine. I turned off the fan. We had fans going out. I don't know why I turned the fan off. And I went to the bathroom and I stayed there for a long time. And then he knocked on the door. You need to come out. Your parents are going to wonder what's wrong. And so I woke up my mother and said, I, my ear hurts. I had had swimmer's ear and she came downstairs and we stayed up for a while. And then when I went back to bed, I went back into my own bedroom. I had been sleeping in, I think we had one fan. And so we all slept in one room with the fan. It was hot. And I spoke to my mother a couple of times. Mommy, are you awake? I'm scared. Mommy, are you awake? And she was. And it was at that point, I was 12 now, just about to turn 13. And I realized I was to the point where now in my mind, if I allowed this to continue, if I allowed this to continue, like I'm the one that has all the power over this, 
I realize now the word no is pretty powerful, but I didn't know how to utter it. Certainly never said yes. And I never, ever acquiesced to anything that was asked of me. But I felt like by lying still, I was giving permission for this to happen. Terrifying. You know, when we talk about consent in sexual assaults now as adults and such, just because there isn't a no does not mean there's a yes. It's a pretty clear, pretty clear delineation. It was shortly after this, I left my mother the note and I went on vacation with my family. I identified my abuser and what was happening to me. And then this was when my mother shared with me that she had gone through the similar abuse. Looking back to all of those steps to, to my life, the big things I notice are the changes within me that as a nine-year-old, eight-year-old, 10-year-old, I don't, didn't associate with the abuse. I know that I was worried all the time. I know that I didn't sleep well anymore. I know that my asthma got really, really bad. That it didn't always relate anymore to things I was allergic to. Sometimes I would start wheezing for what seemed like no reason at all. But I took the time before this episode to look up some of the common things that happen when, when children are sexually abused. There isn't a real significantly standard pattern of what happens because so much of how people respond to things are their personality and what's happened prior to the abuse. But when I look at the list of immediate responses, I remember them well. So shock, fear, anxiety, all of those were instantaneous. Even before I'd really been molested, even before I'd been touched truly inappropriately, fingers to vagina, you know, I felt all of these things. And then comes guilt. I felt incredibly guilty because it was disgusting and I knew it was wrong. And I just owned my piece of it far more than I needed to. Symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. So all of those things, I would have triggers. I would have situations at school where suddenly I was anxious. I had, you know, family get-togethers when the abuser was around. Immediately after the abuse episodes, those were difficult times for me. It wasn't until enough time went by that I kind of forgot about it, that I was really, truly comfortable with my family. Denial. For me, denial initially was that anything was wrong. Okay, I just don't know what's going on. It's okay. It's okay. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. I'm fine. That would be how I would have evidenced denial. Confusion. I was so confused. I was truly, utterly confused. Withdrawal and isolation and grief. So all of those things, I remember I had gotten involved in my church and when the abuse was happening consistently enough that fifth, sixth, seventh grade, when I was in my head all the time and I was really affected by it, I spent a lot of time at church. And I really, I remember more than once wanting to share, but not feeling like I was supposed to, you know, not feeling like it was an appropriate thing to share. And I would plead with God, please, God, please, God. Oh, God, please is actually a mantra I had. When I look back in old diaries, I have so many old diaries from when I was young. And I look back in them now and, oh God, please, is sometimes all that's written on a page. And I look at that as the absence of my mother. I know that my parents' marriage was volatile at that time. My dad was drinking a ton at that time. And he was a mean, nasty drunk. He wasn't a kind drunk. My brother would disappear. He would go to my grandparents' house a lot. I can't say that I blame him. But I was left to sort of be the caretaker. And I was with Jonathan and Johanna all the time. I can remember Saturdays, elementary school age, so fourth, fifth, sixth grade, we'd go to the library and I would just be responsible for them. We'd go to the library. My mother would drop us off and she said she had errands to do. I don't know where she went. You know, her story isn't my story to tell. But we'd be at the library and then they'd get antsy and so I'd walk them home. And I remember one time she came home and she was angry at me that I had walked them home. And, you know, there was no way to call. There were no cell phones. What was I supposed to do? They were too loud for us to stay at the library. And so I walked home with them and, you know, we'd make kitchen forts under the table with blankets. I had a wonderful time. I loved my brother and sister, but I also felt burdened sometimes that, that I was alone a lot with them. And then when I wasn't alone, I was getting yelled at. That was a piece of mine as well. Sexual abuse in childhood is known to be a major risk factor in the development of long-term psychological and social adjustment problems that can carry over into adulthood and affect married life and parenthood. I would say absolutely yes. This is completely true for me. And when I look at my family, my parent, my mother, my grandmother and aunts and uncles and great grandmother, all victims of sexual abuse, pervasive in my family before me. And we talk about generational trauma and how science is, and research is discovering that we can pass along the physical effects of our trauma to our children as we grow them. <laughs> poor Gracie, poor Jingle Jangle. <laughs> I have to say that yes, my abuse my four years out of my 59 years on this planet of being abused have wreaked havoc on my ability to make good friends, to be friendly with the right people, to not get taken advantage of. Another one comes up, most common effects of sexual abuse in children are symptoms of PTSD, 
psychological distress, and inappropriate sexual behavior. So for me, I didn't like that I had an awareness of my vagina. I didn't like the feeling of it. It didn't make me want to touch it. I didn't want to masturbate. Like a lot of kids start doing that because it's a compulsive thing that to, to do. For me, it was the other way around. I think I was just young and I didn't have enough of an understanding that it was even okay to feel those things. I just associated it with my abuser and it made me ill. So that was obviously something that I would have to learn to deal with or have dealt with all of my life around sex and sexual relations. Inappropriate sexual behavior for me was much more promiscuity in college, this compulsion to somehow, if I, if I could convince someone to sleep with me, then they must love me or I must be pretty. You know, I have not spent a lot of time really analyzing it. I also grew up in a time when, when that was really pervasive, you know, free love and all the 60s and 70s drug explosion. And then in the 80s, when I was in college, it was, you know, alcohol and coke. Everyone slept with everyone. It wasn't, it wasn't like some big orgy, but it was very, very different. Birth control pills were now readily available. The risk of pregnancy went way down. You know, I wasn't alone in my behavior, but I know that my behavior wasn't healthy at all. And I know some people who, I have some haters in the world, and I have a couple of people in particular that will listen to this and, and say, this is how I am now. Oh, you're, you're admitting that this is what you are. No, what I'm admitting is that when I was 18, 19, 20, and 21, I really struggled with who I was and what was okay and what my value was. It's also a bit of self-sabotage and self-punishment because I would typically feel awful after these encounters, have a lot of self-loathing and self-hatred. And I think that's a normal, a really normal piece of bonding to sexual abuse in your child. So sometimes I have a handful of friends and I look at their lives. We've discussed our various levels of sexual abuse and they're not quite as, you know, I look at their lives and they don't seem to have, to have the issues that I have. Now, people might look at me and not know that I have any issues. So a lot of times it's what we show each other. But sometimes based on where the abuse occurs, how intense it is, how frequent it is, how it's handled once it's revealed. When I told my mother what was happening, she made sure to eliminate that person from my day-to-day -day life and from having any access to me. So I've never felt threatened by that person again. But at the same time, our family was falling apart. So it was just this disaster, you know, of a time. But I remember my abuser saying, don't tell, you know, people will understand and they'll think it's bad. We just have to keep this secret. Okay, I won't tell. And then when I finally did tell and realized I had every right to tell and I didn't want it to happen anymore, my first words of advice from my mother were don't tell anyone. People won't understand. It was almost word for word, but it had been said to me by my abuser. And that was incredibly silencing to me because the one thing I had was my voice and I was told not to use it. <laughs> not surprisingly, <laughs> I have a hardcore consumption of truth in my life. I don't like secrets at all. I just think secrets are bad. And I've kept enough in my life to know that if you're doing something you can't be honest about, it's going to end up hurting you in the long run. Sometimes children express less severe symptoms. Maybe they have less severe sexual abuse. Maybe they have better protective factors. I was a people pleaser and I always owned blame. Even if things were not my fault, I was one to own blame. And so I think sometimes that happens. Depending on the age, though, a lot of other things can happen. Neurobiological changes, so depression, anxiety. These aren't just moods and behaviors. They're actual physical changes in the brain. I definitely had that. Developmental delays, I don't believe I had any of those at all, quite honestly. I was, I'm very intelligent. I did well in school. Anger and aggression and maladjustment. I'm angry now at age 59. It's taken me a long time to be mad. And a handful of times I got mad as a child, I got in trouble. I remember I had done something wrong. This was before anyone knew that I was being abused and my abuser was in the house when I was getting yelled at by my parents. And I got angry, tough, ain't it? And I slammed the door and all this. And I got in trouble for being angry and I was just responding because I was being blamed for something. So I learned right away, really, I think this is more prevalent with girls too, that you need to be quiet. My two good friends who were boys from my neighborhood could, could talk in class and not get in the same amount of trouble that I got into. And I didn't understand that. I remember I was late for school once with Bobby Vizina and the teacher said, I expect it from him, not from you. You know, he's a boy. Well, okay. So there was all this confusing. A sexual behavior problems and social isolation. So I definitely had maladjustment in school and I had issues around sexuality and isolating myself. I wanted so much to be in the popular group. It became a compulsion for me. I remember in eighth grade, my parents were divorced and I hadn't seen my abuser now for months and months. And I would get up at the crack of dawn to spend hours getting ready for school because I wanted to look the way I thought I should look to fit in. You know, it was exhausting, but I just had makeup on and do my hair 
and make sure my outfits were perfect. Hours getting ready. Reminds me sometimes of Molly a little bit. And I hope she didn't feel so insecure as I did. Dissociative symptoms and somatic problems like anuresis. So lots and lots of children who are sexually abused have trouble with their bowels. They pee, they wet the bed, those kinds of things. Those can be symptoms of abuse if they if they don't seem to make sense for natural reasons. Sometimes children are lacking the uh, enzyme that wakes you up and you have to pee. It tells you your bladder's full, they sleep through it. So, you know, all of these things can happen. PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, was first diagnosed with victims of war. Veterans came home and what they saw in war, how they coped when they got back. PTSD is a completely natural response to any trauma. So if somebody receives a trauma, post-traumatic stress, stress after the trauma makes perfect sense. So you can re-experience the trauma. So for me, when it comes into my head, I have to shove it away, shove it away. And I remember early on when I was first, you know, sexually active and had boyfriends that were long-term relationships and we were sleeping together, it took all my effort not to think about the abuse. It was really difficult to just be in the moment with the sex because my natural response to sex was to go somewhere else and wait for it to be over. And that was incredibly difficult for me. It took a long time. And maybe that was some of my compulsion around having a lot of sex. Avoidance. You avoid things that remind you of the abuse. I don't know that I avoided anything. I'm a jump into life kind of person. Hyperarousal. So when I see that word, I immediately think aroused, like sexually aroused. No, what that means is hypervigilant. You're just on alert all the time. And I would say that's me. I am that way still sometimes. You know, you lay these neural pathways down to practice vigilance. And if you're vigilant, you're a Marine standing on the wall. Nobody's going to get by you. Everyone behind that wall is safe because you're standing on it. And that's how I picture vigilance is I have to be my own Marine standing on the wall that protects me. In children, PTSD can manifest itself through reenactment, like with toys and things, nightmares, flashbacks, specific fears, pulling back from activities, avoidance of reminders of the trauma, inability to concentrate. I know for me, inability to concentrate is a big one. I have to be doing something while I'm doing something else. In school now, oftentimes children are put on yoga balls or tea stools so they can move around as they listen. The moving around calms their inside so they can listen to the teacher. And that was me. These things didn't exist back then, but I, I stopped being able to really focus in school and some of my grades really suffered. So many things for me saved me and helped me. Parental support. My mother believed me and she took action. And that was huge. There are children who are believed, but told, deal with it. There's nothing to be done or you're making it up or I don't believe you or I know what's happening and I don't care. I can't imagine what that would have been like, but there are people that are troubled enough to do that. Consequences of childhood sexual abuse in adulthood. There's a wide range of consequences, so many. And, and if I had to just, instead of going through and listing all of these, the big ones that stand out for me are risky lifestyles, a lot of alcohol and drug use, just taking big risks like that. More frequent visits to the physician. I do go to the different doctors a lot. The asthma doctor, the brain tumor doctor, <laughs> physical therapist. My mother has always had nine gazillion doctor's appointments all the time. And I look at her. She never had the resolution of her abuse that I've had of mine. She just grew up and moved away from it. She never got to tell somebody and then be protected from that person. That, that was a lot for me. So chronic diseases, well, I have chronic asthma. So, you know, that's a disease that I've had. Chronic pain. So my trigeminal neuralgia came at a time in my life where I was incredibly, incredibly traumatized by my job loss. And so I think now that that could be a response to it. I risk sexual behavior, unprotected sex, multiple partners. I would say, yeah, that, that was a problem for me in a time of my life, not for a long, long time, but definitely there. Depression, personality disorders, psychotic disorders, panic disorders. I don't know that I've ever been psychotic. I had a wonderful nurse, psychiatric nurse practitioner named Steve Arvin. You know, it's like a therapist, and, but they can prescribe medication. And when I told him my story and all the different things I'd gone through and everything, he said that I have a very healthy, actually very healthy mental health profile, that I become depressed and anxious in response to things, which is completely normal. And when I processed a traumatic event and life has continued along, those symptoms go away. So I've been on and off depressants and on and off anti-anxiety medicines my entire life. I'm not taking anything right now. And I sleep as well as I ever do, which isn't great, but no worse or better. Suicidal thoughts. I had that one episode my senior year where, where I really wanted to die. And that was around my boyfriend leaving me and having an abortion and feeling just horribly overwhelmed with all of it, not knowing what to do. What I think I mostly wanted was help because if I had really wanted to die, I could have taken a lot more pills than I took and I could have died. But that was as close as I ever had to suicidal ideations. Self-mutilation. So when I think about self-mutilation, I think of cutting and burning. 
I know for me, intense physical pain makes me feel better. So what I do is I exercise. I was in a CrossFit competition yesterday and two of the workouts were just, oh my gosh, out of breath the whole time, just totally, totally in pain and not a lot of rest, two partners working together the whole time. But when I finished, I felt better than I felt all week. I had a really frustrating week and that 18 minute workout was wonderful. So, you know, I've never been a hair puller outer. I've, I've never been a cutter. I've never been anorexic or bulimic. And that's another very common side effect of sexual abuse is issues around food. Many people who are abused sexually become enormously obese because they can hide behind the big giant fat body that they hope nobody will want to touch because it's big and fat. Or anorexic, so skinny that they'll disappear. If I turn sideways, I'm invisible. I am lucky that I didn't ever have those kinds of problems. Drug and alcohol abuse, yes, I have. As a parent, so sexual abuse can affect me as a parent. What happened to me is I became the parent. When I look at my mother's response to her sexual abuse, one of them is parentification of children. My mother has always had me be her confidant. It's like we were in it together. And that's a huge burden on a child to become the parent. You know, as an adult with all my siblings, it's always, well, what would Barb do? Let's ask Barb what she thinks we should do. You know, I'm the fixer in my family and, and it becomes exhausting. I try very hard not to include Gracie in a lot of what goes on in my life. We talk about a lot of things. Like I had a really rough week and it would have been nice for her to stay home and help us load the truck for our Molly D Foundation truck delivery. But she's 21. It's not her job. It's not her job to be my helper. It just isn't. It's her job to be 21 and be healthy and do the things that she wants to do and earns the right to do. She's a good kid. So I have to work hard not to parentify her and to make sure she isn't Jack's parent, that she's just his big sister. Permissive parenting practices. I don't know that I'm permissive. I don't remember Molly and Gracie ever getting spanked. They had consequences for their actions always, but they never did much that warranted bad consequences. Really good kids. Early motherhood, that was not me. Premature births, no. Postpartum depression. I had pretty significant postpartum depression with Molly and with Jack. I was a bit of a basket case after both of those births, just all over the place. We do have a higher risk of mental health issues, substance abuse disorders. What happens sometimes too is sexually abused women have a much higher diagnosis of borderline personality disorder than non-abused women. I have never had that diagnosis. I'm incredibly lucky that way. And I think it comes from my mother believing me and having therapy at that time, as much as I hated it, I wasn't left alone to figure it out at 13, 14, and 15. I had therapists and support. Although it could have been handled better, the abuse stopped and I wasn't blamed for it. And my mother apologized for not noticing. Like all of those things were done for me. So I'm incredibly lucky. You know, and that's, <laughs> this is all that Siri gave me. So I guess in sharing this, in sharing this part of my life, you know, left doing school, just thinking that life was grand and it would get more grand. And I was sad to leave, but excited to move on to fourth grade, meeting all new people and starting a new experience. And really in looking back on my life, those later elementary years were the years that the abuse started. I lost my friend, Maura. At the end of that time in eighth grade, another classmate, David, died of an aneurysm at school. And I really just had five really, really traumatically difficult four years of the abuse beginning and continuing and then finally stopping. And then that my eighth grade year where I was coping with it all. I had horrible health that year. I missed a ton of school. I was in the hospital several times. I didn't eat one time in the hospital. I just refused to eat. I'm not hungry. I'm not hungry. I lost a ton of weight. I weighed like 86 pounds. I remember I wanted to get my period. I was one of the only ones that hadn't. And I was told I had to weigh 90 pounds or I wouldn't get it. And I could not get to 90 pounds until like halfway through ninth grade. And I finally got my period. All of those things, I think, are in direct response to the, the abuse. I remember getting out of the hospital one time and I hadn't eaten. I just refused to eat. I wouldn't. I had an IV. I had fluids. I just, it was my only, my wield of control. I didn't like being hungry, but I, I didn't want to go home. And my mother ordered a pizza and it sounded good. And I ate like four pizzas and I threw up. And I didn't want to throw up. But I think my stomach was like, what the heck? That eighth grade year was tumultuous for me. I spent a ton of time trying to fit in socially at school. When I was in the hospital that year in April, when I was so, so sick, that was when my mother bought me gymnastics camp for two weeks. It gave me something to look forward to. And so I got to go away for two weeks. That was the summer after eighth grade. And that began a whole part of my life. Gymnastics was the first sort of activity that I really looked at as therapy for the abuse. I did swim team all during my abused years, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade at the Concord YMCA. So it was three nights a week and I really loved it. But oftentimes it just was stressful to get me there. I left a screaming house. Sometimes my, my mother was late picking me up and I'd have utter panic attacks, sobbing, just sobbing that she wasn't going to come get me and had forgotten me. You know, I was at the while, I had to do with who's caller on the phone. I had an unrealistic 
fear of losing my mother. And I think I looked at her as my protector. In these last episodes, since, well, since I started the podcast, I've really talked about my life, all of it, as a little girl who's happy, as a little girl who's not happy. As a little girl who had a lot of happiness in the bad years, I had wonderful experiences at church. I loved my choir and youth group friends. We had sleepovers and things. I had an, an amazing relationship with my friend Suzanne. We hiked. I hiked with my mom and my biological dad all the time. We went skiing. You know, there were parts of my life that were wonderful. And then, then there were parts that just were not. And there was that constant sort of undertow, that nagging feeling that I'm missing something. Something's not right. Something's going to happen. There's a movie called Twister about hurricanes. There are these little wind chimes and these things that spin around in, in one of the characters' front yards and they start going, wind blows. And it's not big enough wind to be super noticeable, but something about the wind, and this is what the movie wants you to think. And I remember that scene of the movie brought back my whole entire later elementary school years, this chunk of my childhood, because it just epitomized so perfectly for me what it was like. A little sound of the wind chime, letting me know the wind is blowing. Something about it feels sinister. And sure enough, here comes the tornado or the hurricane. Really, really strong connection there for me. How am I now around all this? Not okay. I have, you know, significant therapy. My wonderful therapist I had after Molly died, Elizabeth Moulton, who retired, I told her my entire life story, all of it. And she just looked at me and couldn't wrap her head around all that I had gone through. And so in sharing it in a way that you can listen or you can turn it off and not pay attention anymore has been unbelievably helpful to me. Created for me a cathartic release of information that really isn't mine to carry. I have enough to carry and I am perfectly willing to carry what's mine. I am not a person who seeks to blame everybody else ever, probably to a fault, quite honestly. I've been told that I like to play the victim. And I think that's a very dangerous phrase because being the victim of something isn't the victim's fault, yet the victim is shamed. You know, in some of my more intense fights with Roy, he would just accuse me of victim playing. Oh, you always play the victim. Well, I don't though. I mean, I'll acknowledge when I was a victim and try to not be re-victimized. Some of my fights with Kenny can get that way as well. I think it's just natural when you get in an argument with someone, you get angry and mean, you point fingers back and forth. But what's cathartic about this is that I'm saying the things that nobody wants to say. <laughs> That's kind of the story of my life. But it's important to remember that this little girl I'm pointing to here, the little sailor dress, you know, that was like six-year-old Barb. What did she do to deserve anything that happened to her in her life? You know, quite honestly, nothing. So is she bad because she's the victim? I don't think so. You know, that little six-year-old is alive and well inside of me a lot of the time. And I have to make sure I pay, I pay attention to her. And I think that's what we all try to do in coping with what we've gone through. So many things I've lost, but I'm still here getting up every day, doing the best I can. And that's all we really can do and not turn around and constantly try to point blame at ourselves because somebody else says that we should. Nor should I feel lucky because somebody tells me to feel lucky. I think it's my job to look at my life and put it together and piece it together and decide what I share. So that's why I shared this episode. So I want to thank you for listening. If you're still listening, I know it's not easy to listen to somebody talk about their 10-year-old vaginas being rubbed, but you know what? That's what sexual abuse is. If you're a female in a female body, you have a vagina. Somebody touching it without your permission is wrong. Anyone touching a child's vagina without their permission is wrong. Other than basic diaper changing, you know, it's, I'm sorry, it's a gift we have to take care of other people. And crossing a line that way is, in some ways, unforgivable. Because the person that has to do the forgiving is the one it happened to, and, and that's a big step. So in terms of all of that, for me, I pray every day for my abuser, that whatever consequences are on the other side are helpful to him and better his spiritual journey. You know, I've never done anything like that to anybody, so I don't have to live with that. Sometimes that's my only solace, that in terms of this scenario, much rather be the victim than the perpetrator, because the perpetrator has to somehow explain why they did what they did. And I find relief in that sometimes. It takes the pressure off of me. That's Barb from age eight to age 13, going through so many ups and downs and trying to figure it out and grow. <laughs> so huh, I'll wrap it up here. I'm a bit exhausted. I'm probably going to have a good cry. I'm actually amazed I didn't cry telling the story. I hope if you have been a victim of abuse, I hope that this was helpful to you. If you think that somebody else has, I hope that you can reach out to them. There are domestic violence crisis centers. There are so many resources now for families and children who are going through this sort of abuse. If I were to give anyone advice, it would be to speak up, open your mouth and share what's happening. If it's a bad thing, somebody will be there to help you. It won't be easy and it won't be perfect, but 
you know, hopefully it will be better than how it was for me. So as usual, do something good for yourself. <laughs> I struggle with this still. I need to follow my own advice. After you've done something good for yourself, do something good for someone else. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.